0: Yes, as I mentioned earlier, we're um, reading through and looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 today, the whole chapter. It's found on page 1,223 of these blue Bibles, if you have one. Uh, That's what Mike was just referring to. Um, There's more at the back in the foyer as well, if you want to get one. Let us read. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. or of any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good.
1: Well, the year was um, 1992, sometime in October. (coughs) It was about a year and a bit before Meredith and I and the family moved to Adelaide uh, for me to take up a teaching role at the Bible College of South Australia. I had um, been in charge of a church plant in the western suburbs of Sydney for about five years. At this stage, and um, at this time, there was a certain sort of buzz going around in the local community. You see, a group of Christians had announced quite clearly that Jesus was going to return and wrap things up as we know it um, on the 29th of October. If you drive along the Great Western Highway, sometimes I used to do, you might see several cars that had really big signs at 29th of October in bright orange on the back of their uh, vehicles, their windscreens. I presume they were transparent so they could see at the back of their cars, but I didn't actually get to hop in one to find out. Um, there was a stir both in the Christian community um, and, of course, you can imagine amongst the local media. This was no idle conviction on the part of these people. Uh, these people were committed. Some of them sold their homes and gave all the money away. After all, what was the point of hanging around or hanging on to them if Jesus was really returning? There was a building in the west, I can't um, quite uh, remember where it was now, uh, where people gathered as the time got closer uh, to the date to wait for the Lord to come. But of course the Lord never did and the results of of that mistake were truly uh, devastating. Now of course there have been many predictions of Jesus coming over the centuries, uh, lots of them. Uh, This was only one. Um, But it was important to me because it happened in my own backyard. Um, close to me, um, and when I was reading One Peter Four this week, my thoughts sort of traveled back to this time because it had been part of my own experience and as I reflected on it, uh, I thought these people at least had two things right: they expected Jesus to return, and secondly, they were committed to behavior they believed was appropriate because of that conviction. Now, in that regard, I believe that is exactly what Peter is seeking to communicate in this passage today from 1 Peter 4. The whole of the chapter pivots or hinges, if you like, around those words in the middle of the chapter in verse 7. The end of all things is near. And this chapter is all about, therefore, what I've called as the heading to your outline, Living and Suffering, In light of the end. You see, the problem with this group of people predicting the return of Jesus, apart from the fact that Jesus says no one knows, that's a bit of a problem, the day or the hour, is that they had no real understanding of what the scriptures say is appropriate behaviour that ought to accompany that conviction and expectation of Jesus' return. I've summarised it in the outline in three main instructions one for each of the three paragraphs in chapter 4. First, the fact that Peter says the end is near means that people are to arm themselves with the attitude of Christ. So verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now notice the therefore at the beginning of the verse. The previous chapter ended... If you are here last week or just look back at the end of chapter 3 with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus has been made alive in the spirit, he's gone to heaven um, and now all powers, angels, authorities, everybody is in submission to him. As such, what the Bible calls the last days have been inaugurated. Nothing else needs now to be accomplished for the salvation of God's people. The spirit of Jesus has been given to believers until the Lord himself returns to wrap things up. And so in this sense, the end is always near, friends. The end is always near. But it won't be easy for God's people. How are we to think about this interim period? How are we to behave? Well, first of all, we're to reflect on the life of Christ, says Peter. And follow his example. We're to arm ourselves with his attitude. What is that attitude? Well, it's the attitude of being prepared to suffer in the body. That's what it says in verse 1. Since Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourselves is like a military term. It has military connotations. You know, the soldier gets his gear together, his rifle, his sword, his armor he's got everything ready to go to battle. So the believer must see suffering and persecution as inevitable. I mean after all it was Jesus himself who said to his disciples if they've hated me they will hate you also. Friends, do you think you can be a faithful follower of Jesus and avoid suffering? Sometimes I think we try to. I wondered if anybody noticed the editorial in Wednesday's advertiser this week by um, one of their constant editors, Tori Shepherd. Anybody? None of you read the advertiser, you poor people. Um, she's a constant critic of um, Christians and particularly uh what she likes to call evangelical Christians. The editorial, of course, was about the young missionary, Mr. Chow. You might have heard of him who uh, went to a very uh, an Indian island, an island off the Indian coast, to a tribe that has had no contact with the outside world, and they killed him. Um, and there's been, you know, a lot said about that. Nobody's been able to recover the body, for obvious reasons. Don't want to get killed themselves. But let me just give you a couple of quotes of what she says in this editorial. Then there are the evangelical missionary organisations. Who are more in the business of gathering up souls so they can show off to Jesus when he returns. They are targeting unreached people groups. Those who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Dot, dot, dot. They clearly discovered, they clearly discovered the little known eleventh commandment. Thou shalt bleat and browbeat everyone you meet into joining your cult. Or another one. This is the way she ended. I hope that instead of an afterlife for the likes of Mr Chow, he will be reincarnated and condemned to to silent and unnoticed toil in the hellish refugee camps of the world. That would be an evolution. Being prepared to suffer is an acknowledgement, friends, that there is a battle going on for the eternal future of all people and for the believers, such readiness to suffer also testifies to something else. Suffering indicates, says Peter, a devotion to God's will rather than a life of sin. Now by sin here, Peter does not mean individual sins. And so somehow he's referring to a life of sinless perfection. No, sin here means rather a life of rebellion against God. Well, I suppose one of the most common mistakes people make is to think the essence of sin is about the things we do rather than a life lived in ignorance of God. Catchphrases like, I did it my way. Doing your own thing. The most important person in the world is you which the world continually encourages us to believe, are the definition, the real definition, of the essence of sin. So says Peter, if you are willing and prepared to suffer for your Christian faith, it's a great indication that you've broken with the world's way of life and its behaviour and committed yourself as best you can with the Spirit's help to a life following God's will. I wonder if that is the way you see your life right now today. Is being a Christian okay provided it's a reasonably comfortable ride? Or are you truly committed to a life devoted to God's will? Because if you are friends be prepared to suffer. A life devoted to God's will is very very different the way of the world especially in terms of the three big ones, money sex and power Peter refers to these in verses 3 and 4 when he says for you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you A life that also proclaims that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, the only way to God will likely meet with some hostility in a multicultural world that considers all religions are different ways to God. Be prepared to suffer. It truly is inevitable if you want to follow Jesus. It is tough and at times disappointing, discouraging. But here Peter offers two incentives uh, to stay the course in verses 5 and 6. First, we are to persevere knowing that God's judgment awaits unbelievers. So he says in verse 5, but we will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In the end, the persecutors suffer persecution the terrible judgement of God for eternity. The Tory shepherds of this world will one day find out the truth. Unfortunately. So when it's tough remember, no one escapes the judgement of God. No one. More But more positively Peter then refers to the believers eternal future in the realm of the spirit. For those prepared to suffer and stay the course, instead of God's judgment that awaits unbelievers, it is life in the spiritual realm that awaits the believer. So in verse 6, for this reason for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but but live according to God in regard to the spirit. You see, unbelievers often view the benefits of belonging to an organisation or a system of belief by what they get out of it. It's a common thing, isn't it? The question people ask, what do I get out of it? What's in it for me? In Peter's day, and in ours I think, believers often see Christianity just in terms of what they call its restrictions, especially in, in terms of lifestyle. Let alone the ridicule or rejection in some parts of the world, even death of Christians through persecution. The death of Christians to many human beings out there is like proof that there's no real benefit in being Christian. Look at the many Christians who have died at the hands, when Peter was writing, of Roman persecution. So according to human standards there might be some strength to this argument says Peter, but not when it comes to God. For that's why the gospel has been preached to every generation of people, even to those many years later who are now dead. Because, says Peter, they might appear dead and gone by human standards to human beings. But in truth, They live in the spiritual realm with God and will do so forever. So then, in light of the end, follow Christ and be prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Secondly, Peter now turns to how we behave. I've summarised it like this. Live soberly and prayerfully. He says in verse 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind, So that you may pray. The end of all things is near. He says, friends, from a New Testament perspective, it is near every single day. Every single day. If that is true, then wake up. That's Peter's message. Wake up. Whatever you do, don't end up in a drunken stupor. Be alert. Pray accordingly. Pray for people who become Christians. Pray for our missionary friends overseas. Pray that God may strengthen you to live according to his will. It's in prayer that we declare our utter dependence upon God to bring about his purposes for us and the world. Now the sad thing is about these Christians I mentioned at uh, the beginning of the talk is that they thought being sober and alert meant selling your house, giving the money away, gathering together in a room waiting for Jesus to show up. But nothing could be further from the truth. The great reformer Martin Luther was once asked what he would do if he knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And he said, plant a tree and pay my taxes. What he meant, of course, was that he lived every day in light of the end, so he would just do the appointed task of the day, what he thought was following God's will. And here Peter says, an awareness of the nearness of the end, soberly and prayerfully, should lead God's people to do two things. First of all, to love deeply. Verse 8 and 9, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Notice Peter says, above all, love deeply. As one writer puts it, love is the preeminent Christian virtue. Peter's already given a similar instruction back in chapter 1, verse 22. Here he says, love because love covers a multitude of sins, which I take to simply mean that love overlooks the fault of others. That's what it does, the faults of others. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, love keeps no record of wrongs. In my experience, I'm pretty good at keeping a record of wrongs. And I suspect many of us are. What does it mean to love deeply? Or if you look up the translations, they say intensely, earnestly, constantly. Well, it certainly means you must work at it. And not just with the people you like. It was Jesus in Matthew 5, 46 in the Sermon on the Mount who said, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. No, real love is tested by the attitude we have towards those on the fringes of our community. People we might have disagreements with. It's evident when we, free, when we refuse to gossip behind other people's backs about them. And when we pray for people, even when we don't like them. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to remain angry or grumpy at someone if you pray for their welfare? It's darn impossible to do that. Hospitality is mentioned here as a specific form of love for one another, um, and it was often very costly. In uh, in the New Testament, uh, with no sort of uh, tit for tat sort of stuff that uh, sometimes goes on, it creates warmth and inclusion that will be evident to all who come. Now, let me say I think there are many things we do here at what do I got to say now? Trinity Church, Golden Grove. Um, that foster love amongst us. Our community groups are key, absolute key in this regard because they help us to share and pray one one another with a level of constancy. And my aim next year will be to try and facilitate as many of you as I can to be part of community groups. Watch out for me coming around and asking you, etc because I think they're so crucial. But other events, like our fish dinners, you know, fellowship in someone's home that we have, informal lunches after church, etc., all have one aim, to facilitate an earnest, constant, and deep care for one another. A few years back, I was preaching at another Anglican church, not in the Trinity Network, and there was a question time after. Question times are always dangerous, but this one turned out to be very dangerous. Um a lady who I think we may not have been there very long who I think probably had a fairly difficult life at this stage asked this question how do I know God's love and how do I feel well this you know, this is one of those times you're sending up prayers galore quickly in the background asking for spirit inspired wisdom as you're trying to work out what to say I started off, of course, by pointing first of all and most importantly to the cross of Christ. For the scriptures point out a number of times that God's love is seen in the fact that he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all as we've just celebrated in communion this morning. But what about feel God's love? Well, then it hit me. I think we feel God's love friends, In the embrace and care and love of his people. And I challenge that day, the whole congregation, as I do here today, that this is what people ought to feel among us the embrace of God's love. It requires work, prayer and effort, but it is the preeminent Christian value. Love deeply. And then secondly, serve faithfully. Verses 10 and 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Well, along with love, we're to serve one another faithfully, the gifts we have. I don't want to spend much time here except to say two things. First, notice the emphasis on God's grace. We are stewards of God's grace. All gifts are not things that we have within ourselves that uh, we can big note ourselves or merited. They're not there to appeal to our pride. We're stewards of God's grace, regardless what gift or task we have. Their purpose is, second, their purpose is clearly to help others and to strengthen community, life and and faith. As one writer says, they're not fundamentally a privilege, but a responsibility, a call to be faithful, in what God has bestowed. In what way do you serve the community here at Grove? It might be time to think of how you can be more involved in the service of your brothers and sisters here at Grove. And if you are involved, then Peter says uh, service may be to help others, but should always um we should always do what we do as a faithful service to God himself, the ultimate end being to his glory. How is your love and service going today as the end approaches? Well, thirdly, Peter moves now on to explain how we should view suffering when we experience it. And he says we should suffer joyfully as the will of God. Verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery fiery ordeal that's come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may, may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now I guess Peter wouldn't have written these words unless the people he was writing to were surprised in some way, by the ordeals that they were suffering at the time. And I think it's probably the same for most generations of Christians since. I confess if someone insults me as a Christian um, because I think and live differently, joy and rejoicing at what has occurred has not been my most common reaction. I'm assuming probably not yours either. But it should be, it should be. Peter says, suffering is an indication of God's blessing. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer, a thief or other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear that name. Now we have the perfect example of this understanding in the New Testament itself, in the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter chapter 5, you can go and read about it, Um, Peter and the apostles were teaching the people in the temple about the good news of Jesus and they were brought before the Sanhedrin. They'd previously been told not to do that. The ruling uh, Jewish council and eventually it takes a while to get there so cut a long story short um, they get flogged and released and then Chapter 5, verse 41, we read, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. You see, to be insulted, ridiculed or worse, still physically hurt in some way for allegiance to Christ is an indication of God's blessing, his presence with you, of participating in the sufferings of Christ, that is, sufferings that arise from your allegiance to Christ. Of course, Peter points out in verse 15 that if you're suffering because you do the wrong thing, or because you meddle in other people's business where it's not wanted, that's not something to rejoice about. And then the suffering is totally deserved. But being insulted because you're a Christian is something to rejoice about. In fact, Peter seems to say here that such rejoicing in these circumstances will lead to even greater and deeper joy when Jesus is truly revealed. Friends, the more we see ourselves as disciples of Christ, belonging to Christ, headed for glory, to be with Christ, tied up with him, the more such rejoicing at insult will become natural to us. Not so much surprising as expected and celebrated. Well, if you thought that 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 thought is radical enough in your experience, then hang on, there's one more. In verses 17 and 18, Peter says, Suffering begins the judgment of God upon God's household and God's people. For it is time for the judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, who? what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now obviously that judgment that's referred to here does not refer to punishment. As almost always elsewhere in the New Testament. That's clear because verse 18 refers to God's people being saved. Rather, it refers to suffering as the means by which God refines and purifies us from sin. Peter's already referred to this earlier in chapter 1 where in relation to suffering he states these trials have come so that to prove prove the genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Our sufferings at the hands of others for our allegiance to Christ is one means that God uses to test the genuineness of our faith, to drive out sin in our lives, and to fit us for the wonderful glory to be revealed in Jesus. You know, sometimes I think to myself it would be a lot easier if I didn't have to work so darn hard to be like Jesus or to put up with insult and ridicule. You know, Jesus could just come back in a second, change me just like that. Wow, that would be a whole lot better, wouldn't it? But in thinking this way, I lose sight of the fact that it's no easy thing for God to truly fit me for what he has in store. Peter says here, it's hard if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, it's hard to fit me for eternity. People like you and me, forgiven, but still somewhat infected with sin. And if you think at times uh, it's tough to be refined, spare a thought and many prayers for those who reject the gospel. Well, Peter says here, only devastation awaits the unbeliever and if it's hard in verse 18 for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment for the unbeliever will be truly devastating. If we need to be purified and refined to fit us for eternity then one can only imagine what eternal suffering under the judgment of God means. Well Peter closes this passage with verse 19 and it's a fitting summary in a way uh, for me to close to chapter 4. Let me read it to you. Um comes up on the screen. So then, those who suffer according to God's will uh, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Jesus is in heaven. All angels, powers and authorities are in submission to him. The last days are here. The end is always near. How then should we think and behave with this perspective in mind? Should we do as the group of Christians did in 1992? Sell up, give the money away, go and gather together, wait for Jesus to show up? Not at all what we should do is simply continue to trust ourselves to our faithful creator and continue day by day to do good, to live the way God wants us to live both in speech and action. To arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, being prepared to suffer. To be serious about how we live with one another in constant love and service with the grace God has given us. To acknowledge suffering for our allegiance to Christ as the will of God, friends. Refining us and fitting us for glory. And that, friends, is something uh, we can truly rejoice about. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you that Jesus is alive, that you made him alive in the Spirit, resurrected him, and now he is in heaven with all angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. We thank you that nothing more needs to be accomplished for us to belong to you because of his death and resurrection. But however long this interim period takes, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to fit us for the glory to be revealed. Help us to be prepared to suffer as we stand up for Christ and share the good news. Help us to love one another deeply and to serve each other. And help us to remember that suffering is something you use to refine us and purify us for that great day to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.